book of Exodus. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings and have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Jesus? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to the Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. And a reading from the first letter of Peter. Come to Jesus, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen, and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. To you then, who believe, he is precious. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner, and a stone that makes them stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of the darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. We are thinking together this fall about issues and problems and questions and possibilities and opportunities and hopes for human community and for unity with God. And so I want to begin today by asking you a question. Who are you? What is your identity? I was thinking not long ago about an old story that I learned as a child, a story entitled The Ugly Duckling. Do you remember that story? It's the story about a small bird that's born into a barnyard full of animals, but it's unlike any of the animals that are there, especially the duck that everyone thought it was. It's a story about 
the growth of this poor creature that was maligned and persecuted and excluded because it didn't look like what it was supposed to be until finally it grew into adulthood and learned who it really was. Do you remember what it was? Not an ugly duckling, but a beautiful swan. I'm thinking as well about another old story about a boy named Mowgli. Do you remember Mowgli was born into a family of, of wild animals and he thought he was a wild animal until he grew up and realized that he was a human being. And so I ask the question again, who are you? What is your identity? There was a time in my life when I was certain that I was the abandoned child of a wealthy and powerful European prince who somehow had been put into the wrong family in New Mexico and one day it would be discovered who I truly was. Any of you have fantasies like that? Always seemed to be strongest when mom and dad had said no. <laughs> The people of Israel were going through an identity crisis, you might say. They had been told stories about how long ago God had appeared to a man in Ur of the Chaldees named Abraham and how God had said to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And how Abraham had many sons. And from his sons there grew a great nation, 12 tribes of people who fell on bad times and found themselves enslaved in Egypt. Not a people anymore. More like machines, more like animals, things to be used. Those people wondered and hoped and cried out, to God. They wanted to be a people. Maybe a people like the Egyptian people. A rich, strong, prosperous superpower that had taken away their rights. They would settle perhaps for being like some of the other people of the day the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. That Z is really important there, the Perizzites. They weren't even really the Israelites anymore. They are not a people. God shows up. One day God shows up as Moses is up on the side of a mountain and a bush is burning, but it's not burning. And God says to Moses, Moses, I have seen what is happening to my people. Let's not talk about the Egyptians, Moses. Let's not talk about the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites. Let's talk about my people. I know what's going on. I've known their suffering not just known about their suffering, I have suffered with them. And so now, Moses, through you, I am going to do something about it. 
You, Moses, speaking for me. You, Moses, with me by your side. You, Moses, with me, with you, every step of the way, are going to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And there's the story of the Old Testament. How God came to be through Moses with his people so that they could go. So that they could learn again and be convinced again that they were and are God's people. Now probably in the back of their minds was this idea that they would become a people like all the other peoples. Maybe with a little extra juice, a little extra oomph, a little extra power, they would be like the Egyptians, perhaps, or later the Assyrians, or the Babylonians, maybe even the Romans. They would go to live in the land of the Canaanites amidst the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and all the others. They believed that being a people was what it was all about. And for a time it worked rather well after wandering in the wilderness and being taken into the Holy Land and struggling for about 300 years to be united, the, 13, the, the 12 tribes to be united into one nation. Then David comes along, brings them together. They become richer, more powerful, more prosperous. They were never a large country like the Egyptians, like the Assyrians. But they prospered for a time. Under Solomon, things were great, and then everything began to fall apart again. In the 700s, then the 500s, they were conquered by the Assyrians, conquered by the Babylonians, imprisoned by the, by the Persians. Some of them got to go back, and they tried to start the nation again and be a people again, and then along came the Romans. Things did not work out so well with these people. And again, they wondered. They kept asking, God, what does it mean to be your people? We're not very wonderful people. We are not a people like all the other people. And then Jesus appears on the scene. And he begins to teach these people that God is doing something bigger God is doing something more permanent, more all-encompassing, more revolutionary than just taking one small people and blessing them. People began to learn that in Jesus, God was doing something eternal. And God was doing something not just with those who traced their lineage and heritage back to Abraham, but God was doing something with everyone. Everyone. Peter would say to these people then, these who had known Jesus, these who had heard about Jesus, these who had decided to follow Jesus, he would say that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That's what it means 
to be someone who says, I believe Jesus Christ. I believe in him, and I believe him and trust him, and I follow him. That makes you part of a new people. So let's ask a question. What does it mean actually to be a people? If you study sociology, if you study anthropology, if you study history, you learn that there are lots of factors that go into the making of a people. Now, all of us sort of know what this is about, right? You know your people, don't you? From what kind of people do you come? If you live in the South, you're used to answering that question all the time, right? Who are your people? If you live in the South, you say, well, my people are the people from Montgomery or from Mobile or from Savannah. My people are going by this name. These are my people. You know the people from whom you come. What we mean when we talk about a people is several things. We're we're talking about perhaps a unique language, a unique literature, a unique location on the face of the planet, a unique history, a common group of enemies and a common group of friends. Maybe it goes all the way down to certain kinds of food and certain ways of dressing, maybe even a certain religion. All of those factors go into making a people. What does it mean to say that we are the people of God? There are three clues right there in the scripture passages that we read. Three things that tell us distinctives about the Christian people. And the first actually comes from out of the story of Exodus. God says to Moses, you are to go to Pharaoh and say this to Pharaoh. Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. It wasn't just that God wanted the Israelites to have an afternoon off or a Sunday morning off so that they could go have a worship service and then come back and start working for the Pharaoh again. No, that's not what it was. God wanted his people to be free so that they could be beholden to him so that they could obey him, so that they could worship him, so that they could follow him. They were not Pharaoh's people. They were not anybody else's people but God's people. And so one of the things that we know about being God's people is that when we belong to God, we are free from everything else, including freed from ourselves, so that we can find our highest good in God. Peter gives us a couple more clues about who we are as God's people. He says, you have been made into a people by God so that you may proclaim the good news of him who has called you. That's what our job really is in the world. Our job is not to build buildings or have choirs or go on retreats or any of that stuff. Our primary job is to do what we've just done for Lucas Collins, to proclaim in word and deed the good news that God forgives our sin, that God receives us into the family of faith, that God gives us new life, and that God gives us eternal life. That's our job. And everything else we do is to do that. 
And then Peter tells us more. He says, we are a new people. We are God's people who have been called from darkness into light. If there's anything that we do, anything that we are, that is about darkness, that is about evil, that is not about God, then that's not who we are. We are about light. We are about truth. We are about love. That's who we people are. Now, let's take that a little bit further. Let's talk about how that works itself out in all of those different categories that I just talked about a little bit. One of the strongest determining factors of what makes a people is their language. How many people here speak a language other than English? Raise your hands. Okay. How many of you struggle with English itself? There, oh, yeah. <laughs> right? How many of you speak more than two languages? Anybody here speak more than two? Okay, three? Anybody here speak three? Four? Anybody speak four languages? Five? Six? What is the language of the people of God? I would propose to you that our language uses words that say love, truth, healing, forgiveness, hope, encouragement, correction. Whatever language you speak in, however many you use, your language as a people of God says those things. How about our location? Most people can trace a location, at least, that is their home. Helen has a cousin who is tracing her people back to a place called Screech Owl Bend, Texas. <laughs> there are not many people from Screech Owl Bend, Texas. I don't know that anybody really wants to be from Screech Owl Bend, Texas. Where do Christian people come from? Actually, we come from everywhere. And we are everywhere. Many of us travel to and fro across the face of the earth, and I know that wherever I go, there are Christian people there in Mosul and Erbil and Kirkuk and Kamishli and Latakia and Aleppo, and Damascus, wherever I go, there are Christian people there because we are everywhere. Sometimes when I drive onto this campus, particularly on a Sunday morning, I think of myself as crossing a border into different territory. I leave Rancho Santa Fe, I leave San Diego County, I leave Southern California, and I come onto this campus, which is merely a representation of the kingdom of God that transcends all other boundaries, all other places, all other times. What about our literature? Most people have a literature that they claim is their own. We claim the scriptures. 
that tell the truth about us and about God and about what we're meant to do in the world. Most people have a unique history. Our history goes back through the Reformation to include all the history of all the Christians everywhere, a history that finds its particular location that began as God spoke to Abraham and then grew from there. Most people groups have a unique set of enemies and a unique set of friends. That's part of the story of the world today. Who are the enemies of our people? Who are the friends of our people? Christian people, the people of Christ, have exactly one enemy. You might say his name is Satan. Beelzebul, the devil. You might say our enemy is evil itself. And our friends then are those who Jesus said do the will of God. Our friends are those who do the will of God. Our friends are everyone who has some sense of understanding about who God is and what God wants for us in the world. What about our food? What do we eat? I happen to love the different foods of different peoples, particularly New Mexican peoples and even old Mexican peoples, and American peoples, and all kinds of peoples. Our food, Jesus said, is the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, especially that word that is manifested for us in Jesus Christ, who gave his body and blood for us, that we might eat that food and be strengthened by it. What do we wear? What do we wear? Everywhere I go, I meet Christians who wear all kinds of things. Some of you might have seen out in the patio between services, five of our sisters from the church in Kenya who are all dressed alike in amazing red and black outfits. How many of you saw them, right? They made you guys look underdressed even. I mean, they were gorgeous, right? What do Christians wear? I would propose that we wear the clothing of righteousness and humility and courage and truth and forgiveness and love. That's what we wear. And then what's our religion? I would propose that we Christian people don't have a religion. We have a relationship. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. That's what makes us a people. I thought about suggesting this to you, but I'm not going to suggest it. I'm going to proclaim it. I proclaim to you that your identity, whether you're a German or an Englishman or a Frenchman or a Spaniard, whether you're a Texan or a Californian or even somebody from Michigan, whether you're a Republican or a, or a Democrat, whether you're a Southern Californian or a Northern Californian, your identity, your supreme identity, the one to which you owe your ultimate loyalty, your ultimate concern, the one in which you have your ultimate hope and that is your ultimate goal is your identity as part of the people of God. That's who you are.
That's who we will be. That's who we must be for the sake of the rest of the world that God is calling to be part of his people. Amen.